Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the CSPA podcast. I'm here with uh, Steve Shu once again. Uh, Steve, how are you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing great. So, you know, our first part of our conversation, we talked about China, we talked about uh, international politics, we talked about the state of science and technology, um, uh, geopolitics. And, uh, you know, that was, we were, um, I guess one thing we didn't get to, I mean, there was so much more that we wanted to get to, but I guess one thing we didn't get to is a little bit of your biography, uh, which is, you know, very, very interesting. We talked a little bit about your uh, uh, your career and sort of your job and your uh, training, but we didn't talk about really like where you're from. So like, you know, you were born in the U.S. or were you born in China? I mean, like, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, that's a great story. I grew up in Ames, Iowa, which is the home of Iowa State University. And uh, my dad came here 1948, before the communists took over China. He came here to go to grad school at the University of Minnesota in uh, aerospace engineering. So I, I grew up as a Midwestern kid uh, in a college town. It was great. Um, my brother and I had a great time growing up. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, like, a lot of Asian Americans are alienated in a lot of ways. And I'm totally the opposite because I... You know, I guess my high school was almost entirely white, but on the other hand, it was in a college town, so people were pretty tolerant, and um, there's still kind of hangover from the hippie era. And believe it or not, the hippie era even uh, affected Ames, Iowa. And so, um, you know, I had a great childhood. Yeah, I think you know when you're like the only one. I mean, I think there's a cool sort of you know exotic thing. I mean, I was a um, yeah, I grew up, I mean, there was a lot of Arabs, you know, maybe 10% or something. And like, you know, kids would fight and sometimes like kids would fight over something else. And then people like on their own race would like want to get involved. Right. And that caused tensions. I think if you're the only one or were you like the only one was, was there any other Asians? Like, how I think in my graduating class, there might've been maybe five Asian Americans or maybe at most 10. Out yeah, of, out that's of not enough. Yeah. Years. That's not enough to have like fights. <laughs> right? like, no. But you know, of course you did lack, you did lack role models and all that other stuff, you know, but, uh, but overall it was good. And you, and you played, and you, the one thing that must've helped you is sort of uh, assimilate and sort of feel accepted. I saw you played division two football at Caltech, right? So do you think well, about like, the lowest, the di- okay. <laughs> <laughs> division three? Um, no, it definitely helps. I think if you're an Asian American, you're a lot, the ones who are athletic are a lot less alienated than the others. Yeah, of course. So like, like race. You know, I was a co-captain of the swim team my senior year and in sports the whole time and stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, it also helps me bigger than average. <laughs> so so instead of, you know, if you're if you're on the opposite side of the stereotype, obviously you you suffer less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just size and sort of athletic ability for for men is just, you know, uh, universally desired. Right. You know, I think yeah, that I yeah. think so. Yeah. So it's, 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 uh, you know, sometimes the sort of stereotype stuff when, when one group is, you know, tends to be smaller or less athletic on average, if you overcome that stereotype that you don't have the problem. A lot of the, I think stereotypes and alienation people feel is just sort of a stereotypes based on statistical realities. Right. So an Asian will say, Oh, you know, you know, people will think I'm not very, you know, athletic or this and that, that it's like, well, actually, you know, on average you, you're, you tend not to be athletic. Right. So it's like something that yeah. people will think. And then it seems to cause like bitterness. And like, if you're abnormal for, you know, your group, then it seems like, you know, that it's not even a factor. Yeah, it definitely was a factor for my brother or myself because we were both, we were both pretty athletic and played on sports teams and stuff like that growing up. 
Yeah. One thing I found fascinating, I mean, you're in your, uh, uh, on your blog, you talked about you have this book. And I, you know, apparently this is normal in, in China and, and Korea, and I don't know if other places, but you have this book that has every generation. And this is just paternal line, your father, his father, his father, his father, uh, going back to the 10th century. Is that right? Oh, my God. No, I think it goes back 3,000 years. So, okay, it must uh, have been 10th century, like BC. I must have, yeah, I must have yeah, misread it. 10th century BC. Uh, it is not typical. Uh, it's generally only certain elite families that have these things. And uh, I could go get it. It's, it's actually in the other room. It's like this huge multi-volume thing. Um, and it was compiled. I got a copy of it from one of my uncles in Zhejiang province. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a genealogy. It's much more detailed maybe in the last thousand years than in the first 2000 years. Um, you, you might say like, if you're really going back that far, you're not sure how much you can trust it, but it's a, it's a patrilineal family tree. And um, I don't know, there must be 700 pages or something. And like, so the more illustrious people in the patrilineage get like a whole page of biography <laughs> in, you know, Chinese characters are also pretty dense in information. So um yeah, very weird uh, situation. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been these studies that not just in the, also in the West, but also in China that, you know, some of these elite families have been elite for a long time. And even after the communists took over, they were still elite. So they, like, they survived an entire like uh, communist regime and still are kind of at the top of society. And it's a little bit unexplained how that all works. Yeah. Have you read the, you said it's 700 pages. Have you read the whole thing? No, I my I don't read Chinese very well, so um, I haven't. My wife has looked at it, but uh, I haven't certainly haven't read it. I mean, you know, it, 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 who knows what it says? Like so and so was a great horseman and won this competition and had seven kids, or you know, who knows? It's hard for me to believe that that could be. Yeah, you know, the line could. You know, you wouldn't have one irresponsible guy who just you know burned the book or like lost it somewhere or something. Are you suspicious that maybe at some point somebody just sort of. Uh, no, because what happens is uh, it's, it's parallelism. So, so yeah, you can have a lot of irresponsible guys as long as one or two guys in a given generation are keeping track. They just write it into the book. It's it's not like it's not like each page is autobiographical. Like the guy wrote it himself. It's somebody in the family is keeping track. And um, now, could they be an error? Could there be like you know um, children who are not really the children of who people think they are, or all kinds of inaccuracies? Of course. But just as a just as a as a document, you know, it's kind of amazing that such a thing exists. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it is amazing. I mean, your uh, so your ancestors were probably literate then for that whole period, right? Probably. I think that's true. Yes, that is true. At least some some chunks of the each generation were literate for sure. Yeah. Human civilization is a funny thing. I think at least on my mom's side of the family, I think literacy doesn't go back very far. Like I, I'm not even sure about my. Uh, Great grandparents. Like I, I actually, I think I would doubt it that they were actually literate. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty old. I mean, the, one of the most amazing things that happened to me at one point, I was in the Palace Museum in Taipei, which is a very famous museum because famously the nationalists st- on their way out of China stole huge amounts of artwork that the communists are still mad about, and um, so the best collection of certain types of Chinese art yeah, is in this Palace Museum, which is in the middle of Taipei. And you go in there and, and I was with my wife and my wife just started reading stuff from these scrolls that were like thousands of years old. And I was like, wait, you can just read that? And she's like, yeah, I can read it. 
And, uh, you know, and it was funny because it was a very unflattering thing about this diplomatic delegation from Japan that was visiting the emperor. And it, it literally says like emissaries from the kingdom of the dwarf pirates visit the emperor. In Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> I started laughing because it was so, so unflattering to the Japanese, but it's like very, very old document and she could just read it. So. Yeah. So yeah, the language is pretty much, I mean, the spoken is obviously probably, you know, not, it's, it's definitely not consistent, but the written seems like you can, it, there's, there's not much, uh, there's not, there's a Madam reader of Chinese can go back to how far, like at what point, like, well, it, there are some changes. If you go too far back, then you need to be a specialist in classical Chinese to actually read it. But I think my wife can actually read a lot of that too. But, but, uh, I think for a, a typical Chinese person, uh, there's a slight complication because the mainlanders simplified the characters at one point. So some mainlanders can't read traditional Chinese. Um, but if you're from Hong Kong or Taiwan, you can read back, I think, at least a couple thousand years, maybe not 3000 years, but yes, a long, a long time. Yeah. Written language changes generally at a, at a slower pace than spoken language. I know Arabic, I know Quranic Arabic is, is readable, um, but it yeah. doesn't resemble anything that uh, anybody speaks as a native language today. It's, uh, you know, yeah, the, the amazing thing about Chinese is because, you know, it's ideographic. So you have symbols for concepts. So it's not symbols for word sounds, which change over time in the oral language. It's symbols for concepts. And so these guys literally had to like sit down and say like, okay, there's this concept called the sun or this concept called jealousy. And then we're going to make a little image for it, a little pictogram and they, they and of course they it's more clever than that because they combine certain primitive concepts to get a more complicated concept so the characters have subcomponents but <clears throat> what's interesting about it is if you if you study information theory there's this question of like how many distinct primitive concepts is human thought built out of and you can almost answer that question because a little kid can start reading the newspaper once they've got i don't know something like two or three thousand characters so you're you're literally building you know, unless you're really, you're Albert Einstein or something, the average person is building their entire conceptual universe out of like maybe a couple thousand primitives and just combining them and stringing them together and stuff. So, so uh, it's kind of obvious if you understand Chinese characters that that's the case. Yeah. It's interesting you said you don't uh, read Chinese well. Did your parents try to sort of um, uh, have you study it or, or not really? Were they, were they just not interested? This is the difference between the 80s and now. So uh, now the sentiments are much more hold on to your ethnic identity and uh, isn't diversity great. Whereas in, when I grew up, uh, it was more like everybody's got to assimilate. And so my parents actually uh, didn't push us that hard to learn Chinese. And actually, although when we were very young, they spoke to us in Chinese when we were at home, when we got to a certain age, they actually uh, were worried that we would fall behind in English, which, you know, again, was maybe wrongheaded but they well-intentioned, but wrong-headed. So they switched to speaking to us in English. And um, so consequently, very few of the kids in my generation who are Asian Americans uh, have good Chinese language skills. And the, the exceptional cases are often ones who like grew up in Chinatown or they um, you know, picked it up in college later on, or they went and lived in Asia in college. Is that an eighties? I mean, is that a thing? Is that a time thing? I mean, do immigrant parents today really care them? I, I, you know, I, I, I actually know somebody who's a Chinese immigrant who had the same sort of exact same thing happen. She has a 11 year old son and pretty, pretty much the same mentality. So is it just, is, is it really a time thing or is it just sort of a class and how I exposed think, you are to sort of American so, culture? 
I think it's always true that the kid will tend to lose their ancestral language if they're immersed in a different language. That will that effect is always pushing in one direction. But nowadays, it would be much like, especially like if you were in Los Angeles or something, it would be very common for your parents to stick you in a very well-run Chinese school or very well-run Korean school. Whereas in back in, in the day when I was a kid, though, they were not well-run and they were not intense and they didn't really accomplish what they were supposed to accomplish. But now, like, especially if you grow up in like the part of Los Angeles, I think, where you live, those Chinese communities can be pretty tight and their kids have a much better chance of retaining the language better uh, than, than certainly in Iowa. Yeah, I think that's right. You go to these parts of the, uh, yeah, the, the San Gabriel Valley and you see these, every uh, store is, is owned by some of these Chinese and they all have like, you know, terrible English, you know, just something, it's just like something really yeah. funny, like best super, you know, wonton or something like that. Like every single one. And it's like, yeah, this is so well, they're, they're recent. Yeah. They're, they're recent immigrants. And, but the thing is that, in their communities, the kids can yeah, exactly. you know, get a, a lot more math. practice in yeah. Chinese than than I would have. Yeah, but without the school, without the schooling, I mean, the thing about schooling is, you know, you you go you go uh, to school, you learn like you know big words and like political and scientific and uh, social studies concepts, right? And then that sort of supplements, and then you have TV, and then like American pop culture is like so seductive. Like I don't know if you know, I'd be surprised if even those kids like were fluent, fluent Chinese growing up. I mean, I think it's just the power of the American education system and the pop culture, I just think is so overwhelming for anyone who lives here. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think still most of them, you know, they're, they're nowhere near native fluency, but uh, it's just much, the, 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 the circumstances are much more favorable now than they were when I was growing up. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, that's right. So yeah, that's, that's all, that's all interesting. Yeah, same way. I mean, my parents, same thing. They, they said, don't worry about Arabic. It's, it's stupid. You don't, you don't need anything. Yeah. The yeah. idea that you're going to like not be able to speak English. Like my, 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 uh, my mom had the, the same concern, you know, anyone's listening to this, they're going to, they're going to learn English. <laughs> Your kids are yeah. going to learn English. <laughs> try to get them something, you know, when that critical window and they can, when they get to get, when they soak everything up, try to get them a different language because English is coming no matter what, if they're born. Yeah. I, I think that concern is somewhat misguided. Yeah, the other issue, which is, you know, in the back then, there was not that much travel, international travel, whereas now, you know, you bring you, a lot of these kids from L.A. might go to Asia in the summers to see relatives and stuff like that. And then they would just get a lot of immersion experience in the, in the language. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Is there um, there? Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's, I guess let's move on. I mean, I'm worried that we're going to you know talk about this and it's going to be a little bit, um, you know, a little yeah, bit. I don't know, how many, you know, other than some immigrant Asian American or Middle Eastern American kids who else who else is interested in this. Right. Oh, I think everyone I think everyone is interested in sort of the, you know, the cultural sort of the cultural clash. Yeah, I don't think it's the, that, melting, the melting pot. Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, it is fascinating how people's intuitions just don't match like you know, I think reality I mean, like, you know, the fact that, you know, people think like you're not going to learn English, like you're born in America. And like, if your parents don't speak to you in English, you're going to be just like walking around speaking Chinese your whole life. Like, it's crazy that people think that. And it's funny that like people think that and it's, it's so wrong. Right. Um, and so it's like, it's, yeah. So it's like, a, it's like a, um, it's a, you know, it's, I guess if people who like assimilation, I mean, that's a hopeful thing that like everyone is basically assimilating, at least to the language, you know, what, what they get with that language, maybe they go off to a university um, and they're brainwashed into liberal nonsense and that, that, that's, you know, not, not great. And maybe they start to hate America or whatever, but they're, whatever, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be assimilating into whatever, you know, 
the rest of us are doing in America. You know, I was, yeah, cause I, uh, I was in Texas not that long ago. So in America, so here in um, the San Gabriel Valley, like during COVID, everyone wears masks. And even when they don't have to wear masks, like outside, they still wear masks. Like the Asians would wear masks before COVID. Like, you know, you would see that sometimes, but now like if you live in an Asian area, it's like, you know, everyone's wearing a mask all the time. Um, even outside, there's never been a, there's never been a mask mandate outside here. Um, but you know, people, uh, people do wear it. And even, and so like everyone conforms, right? So like the Hispanics who don't, who barely speak English, who I see, you know, doing, you know, yard worker or whatever, they're also wearing masks outside. I spent some time in Austin recently and you'd think the Hispanics there, you know, who are recent immigrants who are doing the same kind of work, they would be different. And they're all, none of them are wearing masks. And so it's interesting how like you can get the same population and they just assimilate to whatever sort of the, the dominant cultures. I saw Asians at UT Austin and they were probably much more likely to wear masks than um, uh, than most other people at the school, but less than white people or Asian people or Hispanic people uh, in Los Angeles. So it's really just, I, I think wearing a mask is a big, big deal. I mean, you know, whether you do that or not, it's not like a, a small concern, like, you know, whether you vote this way or that way. Uh, the fact that this can be so determined by like the dominant culture just sort of shows, I think, the power of assimilation. You know, Michigan is a funny state because it's both blue and red. And so I live in a kind of blue town. And so when I go to a swim meet or something, my kid's athletic event or something, everybody's wearing a mask and people stare at you if you're not wearing a mask until, until the last couple of weeks. But other, like if we had an away meet and we would go there, every single person at that other school, the parents uh, in that community, nobody would wear a mask. So it was just very stark. Like you just drive actually literally drive 20 minutes and nobody's wearing a mask. Yeah. It's amazing. So. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've wrote a been, I've written about how this surprised me because most like red state, blue state stuff, it's sort of stupid and, and you know, trivial. Uh, but this is like, you look at the, you look at people and just the people, you know, some are showing their faces and some are not. I mean, that is like fundamental to like how a culture functions, right? Like when we, when we look at yeah. Muslim fundamentalist countries, we say, wow, their women cover their faces. And I never thought in America we'd have like, you know, red state and blue state have like as much differences between Afghanistan yeah. and say Europe or something. <laughs> it was, it was super interesting to me because when I go to these meets at the other schools, and again, it could be literally 10, 15 miles from here. Um, the other parents are still maybe working on laptops or they have their, you know, working on their phones and, they're not dressed any differently than I am. Um, it's just that they're not wearing masks. It's, it's crazy. So it's the only, yeah. Start, yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah. It's a wild, it's a wild, you know, cultural marker. Um, yep. So, yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's all, that's all interesting. The, uh, so moving on to current events, I mean, we talked a little bit about us and Russia and last time we talked about three weeks ago, um, you know, nothing had really started yet. It's now February 22nd. By the time we release this, something else is going to have happened. Um, but I think we can talk about a broad outline. So today's February 22nd. What's happened is uh, uh, Russia has recognized uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, the two uh, eastern regions of Ukraine um, that were held by separatists. And they recognized all of Donetsk and Luhansk, where the separatists only control parts of those uh, parts of those uh, provinces. Um, and so, you know, it looks like we're getting probably at least a war for the rest of Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, and, you know, most people say probably much more that probably Russia is going for a lot more. And so given, you know, given where we are now, sort of how you, how do you see the situation? How do you think it's going to unfold? And how do you think like America, the American response has been? I have to, I have to say I'm a little bit flummoxed because I thought Putin was actually thought he was going to hold back. And uh, so I'm curious, actually curious what your opinion is on why he did it. Is it 
some people are asserting that it's part of some big plan. And I think that's consistent with the speech, the hour long speech he made, which was very broad in its historical and strategic analysis, which indicates that this is part of a broader plan. And, and he, there were other demands that he made in that speech, which made it clear this is just the beginning. If he follows that line, of course, it could just be a negotiating position. But of course, he, he was that speech was to his own people. So it, it locked it certainly locks him into a certain position if he's just negotiating. Um, now, on the other hand, um, other people are saying, yeah, Putin basically was forced to do it because the West is egging on these Ukrainian forces to basically kill civilians in these areas, you know, through artillery fire and other things. And he in order to protect those, you know, ethnically Russian people. Uh, he had to, he had to basically uh, do what he did. So I'm not sure which of those two is right. I guess I, I take his speech very seriously. And if I take the speech seriously, he's asking, he, he's demanding lots of stuff like uh, basically demilitarizing all of these uh, borderland states, which even the ones that are part of NATO, if they, if they have a, they share a border with uh, Russia, he wants them, he wants the I think if you read his speech literally, he wants the bases out. He wants no missiles. Um, those are very strong demands. And um, this could be a protracted confront, not necessarily a hot confrontation, but it could be a protracted disagreement, uh, I think. I don't see an easy way out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, when um, when the U.S. intelligence started reporting, I think there was a, like a New York Times news alert in December that said they thought, you know, intelligence thought that Putin might be invading Ukraine next year. Um, I started looking into it. And the people who are sort of skeptical of American foreign policy, American intelligence community, a lot of them said this is nonsense. Um, I didn't think it was uh, nonsense. And, I, you know, I've been posting my predictions. I've always been about 10, 15 percent ahead of wherever Metaculus was on whether uh, Putin was going to invade Ukraine. And, you know, there's a, there was a couple of reasons for this. I mean, first of all, like people say they don't trust the intelligence community. This is a specific thing that's either going to happen or not. It's, you know, when there was the things that Russia was putting bounties for killing American troops in Afghanistan, that was something that happened in the past that nobody could ever verify. So I, I was skeptical of that. And it's right to be skeptical of that. This is, you know, something you can verify or not with satellite technology um, that they have, you know, a hundred something thousands troops. Um, and they say there's going to be invasion. And so, you know, that's, that's, you know, you start with there, you start with there. Okay. Like this is more credible um, than the typical thing that they're going to uh, predict. And then I looked at the um, strategic situation that uh, Putin was facing. There's a couple of really good articles that uh, influenced me here. There was one by a guy named uh, Rob Lee. He's a professor of international relations, I think maybe at the uh, U.S. Air Force, um, there's University of the U.S. Air Force or something. I, I forget. We'll put the links in there. But he had a really good essay, uh, one by Anatoly uh, Karlin, uh, who's a Russian nationalist who has a substack um, who's written about this, and one by uh, Adam Tuz, um, who's an economist um, who wrote about the Ukraine situation. And all these all these guys, they thought, you know, there was something to this, or they heavily implied, I don't know about twos, but Carlin explicitly, and then also uh, uh, Rob Lee. Um, and the idea is, look, if, if Putin does nothing, um, Ukraine is just going to be going uh, more and more to the West. I mean, that, that you know, they're eventually going to be a member of NATO. They're going to, the Americans are going to put troops there. Um, and then Carlin uh, sort of opened my eyes a little bit to this. And I, um, I, I went and did my own research about sort of what's happening with um, 
the uh, Russian language in Ukraine. So Ukraine is basically banning Russian language media, not officially banning Russian language media, but saying whatever you produce in Russian has to produce like something in Ukrainian too, which apparently will, you know, it's just a plot to shut down uh, Russian language media, um, Russian language education. They're getting rid of that. Um, they are, uh, you know, shutting down TV stations for the uh, Russians, um, uh, for the uh the pro-Russian party uh, in Ukraine. Um, and so like, you know, this is a, you know, this is a serious effort of, you know, forced cultural assimilation. It is, you know, an attempt to basically uh, orient them towards West forever and not give Russia any chance uh, to, you know, to have any political influence at all within the country. Um, and so, you know, if you think Russians care about the nationalist aspect, they care about the future of Russian language speakers and Russian culture. And if they care about the security aspect of NATO, um, it made sense to me that there was there was good reason for Putin to invade. That doing nothing, I mean, was gonna things were just gonna get worse time over time. And then Rob Lee goes into sort of the uh, the uh, military technology. So the, he talks about um, the uh, war between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which showed the uh, the um, the uh, usefulness of drones for going after tanks. So Russia has the tanks, right? So Ukraine is basically they're building their uh, drone capabilities. Um, you know, they started out with, you know, nothing in 2014 as far as their army goes. They've been c- consistently building. So on the cultural front, like, you know, and on the sort of military front, things are just going to get worse and worse for Russia over time. Um, and so the question is, you know, what do you do? You, you, you can, you know, maybe go tell the U.S. that we're very serious and we're, we're going to have to come to some agreement here or we're going to use military force. But then if the U.S. doesn't do that, and who knows, maybe Putin you know, had, just, had decided this already, and that's why they made maximalist demands, because they knew that the U.S. was incapable uh, of making any kind of deal or unwilling to make any kind of deal. Um, but whether, you know, it was a bluff or whether it was, you know, uh, an attempt to settle it, I mean, I think they had, if, you know, the bluff doesn't work or the, uh, the threat doesn't work, you have to go in. Uh, so I think that's where we're at now. So this is this is why from the beginning, you know, I thought this was potentially leading to disaster. And I think I've been right so far um, by. Yeah. You know, yeah. Does that does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm updating my priors now because I, I thought this whole thing was just a kind of a Western psyop for a long time, you know, mainly aimed at the Germans to try to get the Germans to drop Nord Stream 2. And, uh, you know, maybe trying to egg Putin on into doing something, kind of baiting him into doing something so they could really drop the hammer on him with sanctions. That's kind of what my model for what was going on. But after hearing that speech, which Putin gave to his own country, I I sort of feel like there are some pretty deep seated uh, issues here that he's not going to let go of. And so, yeah, I think I think the big winner here is probably China. Yeah. Well, the Chinese reaction, though, has not even been, uh, uh, you know, you would think it's very sort of restrained. I mean, it seems like the Chinese do not want, you know, I think a lot of people think that sort of China's just sort of sitting there and waiting, ready to pounce, like whenever there's like some America's distracted, but it appears not. It appears as China is just like, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of have as little tension as possible and still sort of keeping their head down and, and growing. Do you see the Chinese reaction in the same way? Yeah, I see it the same way. Now, I, I think they have relatively warm relations with Ukraine, actually. Yeah, and they've not recognized Crimea. So, so they, I think they are a little bit reluctant to, and, you know, they're not going to give stuff away for free. I think that's their nature. So who knows what, she, I really would love to know what she and Putin discuss at the Olympics. Um, but, you know, I think, I, I think a little bit longer term. So if, if, if Russia remains at loggerheads, with the West, 
oil flows maybe are cut off to Europe or reduced. Um, it's all good for China because the fewer options Russia has, the more it has to play ball with the Chinese. And to the extent that they integrate uh, their economies or at least uh, you know, have friendly relations and, and, and trade, it's all good for China because it, it shores up some weaknesses that China has, you know, for example, dependence on energy imports. They can get them from Russia instead of having to ship them from the Gulf. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, even some military technology exchange, I think, is still beneficial between the two countries. So um, I think in the long run, it's good for China. It, it strengthens up. It strengthens one of their uh, uh, board, you know, one of their weaknesses. Yeah, I've seen some commentary that, oh, uh, this actually unifies the West. So China is going to like have a more difficult time and Russia is going to have a more difficult time. And it's like, look, you you unify, but like you're, you know, you're, you're unifying against too many people on the other side, right? It's like Russia, and then you have China and then India, you know, also won't uh, condemn Russia. Um, and that's very interesting, too, because I think a lot of the sort of American foreign policy establishment, they have this dream where India is going to be, you know, part of the alliance of democracies and India is going to be a force against Russia and China. And the Indians seem very uninterested in that. Right. And so when you have like if you want to be constantly hostile towards Russia and China and then India is just neutral. I mean, you're just you're just declining over time. I mean, America and Europe is a percentage of the world. And so there, there's really it doesn't seem like there's a good long term plan here. Yeah, I mean, India and Russia have a special relationship. I think something like 60 or maybe even 80% of the military equipment that the Indians use is from Russia. So um, they are also going to be very careful in just throwing in on the American side against Russia on this issue. So, um, yeah, I I think, uh, and and like, okay, it's not clear exactly how the dynamic with Germany is going to play out here. So if, if Putin is too aggressive, then of course the Germans will realize, okay, this guy's a threat. We better cozy up with the Americans and do what they say. We'll be good members of NATO, right? Whereas to the extent that they don't believe the American rhetoric that Russia is really a threat, they're willing to trade, they're willing to buy energy from Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The relationship between Germany and China, which is super important in the next decade, um, you know, that's somewhat independent of this. So if the U.S. has to spend a lot of its capital with Germany to get Germany to align properly against Russia, it leaves the Germans a lot more room to conduct trade freely with China. So a lot a lot depends on exactly how aggressive Putin is and exactly then what the German public or whoever runs Germany uh, actually comes to believe. Do you think that they will stay? I mean, that the, you know, Americans and the Europeans will stay united because like Russia can, you know, hurt the, you know, I, I don't think they believe that Russia is a ultimate threat to invade Germany or, or to invade France. Um, but they can, you know, if they, if Germany and France want to care about Ukraine, they can make life difficult for, for Germany in particular. Um, and so the question is, you know, yeah, they go along with the U S now. I mean, Germany and France have always been sort of more willing to negotiate to work with the Russians, uh, than the Americans have been. Um, you know, should we take it for granted that even if Putin, I mean, even if he goes maximalist, even if he, you know, takes all of Ukraine or much of Ukraine, that Germany and France are going to stay united, um, with the Americans against him, you know, for, for how long, five, 10, 20 years. I mean, I don't know if we can take that for granted. You know, it all depends. I mean, imagine there's a really terrible humanitarian situation in Ukraine. Maybe there's an active resistance. It's all kind of stuff that can pull at the heartstrings and make the French public and the German public unwilling to have business as usual with Russia. You can imagine, you know, America is a master of propaganda, 
right? CIA, uh, media, U.S. media, U.S. tech platforms. Um, the tiniest little thing will make the Russians look like monsters, right? And uh, that will impact the extent to which, you know, Macron and Schultz, they, they may be thinking in terms of real politic and, and what's best for their countries, but they're constrained also by just public opinion, which is connected to the social networks and, and uh, you know, media propaganda and stuff like that. So I just think it, it will be tough for the Russians not to be painted entirely in black yeah. over anything. Although France in particular, I mean, Zamor, I mean, it could be, you know, could be the next uh, president. It's probably not likely. I mean, I don't know, betting markets give it 10, 20 percent. He's very sort of skeptical of this hawkish uh, view towards uh, Russia. So, yeah, and I think Macron as well, actually. I, I don't think Macron is really just a he's obviously not. I mean, he's been very critical of NATO. Right. So um, I think those guys know that the best thing for Europe is to not get caught up in, you know, to the extent that you accept the proposition that Russia is really not an existential threat to Western Europe. Then the best thing is not to get caught up too much in American craziness in confronting the Russians and try to retain your uh, freedom of decision-making, both in economic and military terms. Yeah. Public opinion. Um, I mean, I don't know how much public opinion. Yeah. I don't know how much public opinion. I mean, elite opinion, yes, is one thing. How much does the elite opinion care? I mean, the public opinion, you know, care about the Russian Ukraine. I would be surprised if they cared very much. I mean, in either Germany or France. I think there's. But if you, but if you go to meetings of the elites, uh, and here I could I could mean you know hedge fund manager, C level guy at a public company, think tank people, they're all influenced by this same propaganda. So so they're all very willing to just assume you know just assert. Putin is an evil murderer and uh, wow, look at all those dead Ukrainian children. And um, that is elite public opinion. <laughs> so I think that, and, and it's not like they're holding a gun to Macron or Scholz's head. It's just very tough to resist that kind of group think. Once it becomes embedded into the entire class of people that you spend your day talking to, you have to be incredibly strong mentally to resist. Yeah. Uh, whatever yeah. Although it sort of, it reminds me of the immigration issue and like the elites all thought one way. Um, but that created an opening for people within the political process to take advantage of the issue, right? Um, and so I, I think immigration policy and actually much of Western Europe has gotten much, much tougher. Um, and so, elite, you know, when you have a democracy, elite opinion sometimes can be overcome, right? Um, if elites are really Why? going crazy about Putin and the masses don't care. You know, that can yeah. Be- I mean, I, I actually think Trump's election is an example of what you just said, that the, yeah, the elites exactly. in the U.S. went so far against what the average American thought about immigration that it just created this huge opportunity for Trump. And maybe, maybe that could be the case with Russia as well. If, if, if uh, the, the elites are too, and if the, and if the economy, Russia, I mean, if you can connect it to the economy really suffering and the gas prices, right. It's not just people are going to love Russia. Yes. It's they're going to say, this is stupid to, yes. have, to have this cost. You know, I have a, I have a buddy who um, he has something of a physics background or quant background. And he runs, I think the largest, if not the largest, one of the largest uh, energy trading funds. And uh, I've got to get in touch with him and see what's going on because I wonder how he played this one. If he played it right, he's made a billion dollars <laughs> in the last couple of days. But uh, I got to see what he's yeah. doing. Here I am on Metaculus. I should have bet on the, I should have bought some oil, you know, uh, I should have bet on oil going up. I that was pretty <laughs> stupid. Yeah, I bet on Metaculus. I set it out of my Substack and I felt good about myself instead of trying to make some money off of this. Uh, but I think, yeah, no, if I, if I, yeah, I mean, if I had thought Putin was really, cause I think markets were discounting it 
I think markets were discounting that he was actually going to do anything, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, next time, next time I have a foreign policy prediction, I think I'll take it to you and we'll figure out how to operationalize it and, and make it make money because yeah, I should have I should have done it. I, I just don't think in that terms. I just think of in terms of reputation and go online and you know get on the record. Yeah, you could have. You, I mean, even as an individual investor, probably you could have bought uh, some derivatives that uh, would pay off. For your, for your insight. Oh, well, next time, next time, <laughs> next time there's a war, I guess. So, uh, yeah, so, okay, yeah. So, I mean, by the time I think people hear this, either um, things are going to have calmed down or things are going are gonna to have moved forward. Um, things are not going to stay the same. I mean, the Donetsk and Lahans have been recognized and, you know, they're, they're either going to have to uh, come to agreement or they're going to go forward. And, you know, just as we're speaking now, uh, there was a Blinken uh, um, press conference and there was a Biden uh, speech and zero indication that there's any kind of bending on the uh, uh, the fundamental issue, which is sort of NATO and making you, Ukraine. You know, I think since, you, since you're well calibrated on this and, you, and you're on Metaculus, do you have a point prediction on whether Nord Stream Two is dead? Um, I haven't really thought about. I mean, it depends on the time frame. Um, I would, you know, if you just asked me to make a, you know, I'd have to re- I'd have to research like how close it is to being finished now and like what it would mean um, and like what it would mean to just go forward at this point. But you know, I I think it's going to be. I think Nord Stream is so symbolic at this point that it's most likely most likely dead. Um, so then if, if that's true, and I, at least some of the analysis that I've been looking at today about liquid natural gas shipments to Europe suggests there's no way to avoid some huge energy crunch in Europe. So maybe next winter will be the real yeah. uh, time. And, and, so, yeah, and Germany, what they did was they shut down all their nuclear power plants stupidly. So I don't know what it's involved with, you know, going back on that. So if they go at that motivates them to go do the, you know, bring back the nuclear power. Um, maybe they can weather the storm. I don't know about German policy. Like maybe it's, maybe they're just crazy. I mean, I know there's a green party is in power. The green, Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know like German environmentalists tend to be crazy. Right. So it, 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 I don't know enough yeah. about German politics to know uh, whether that's actually an option. Right. Um, if it's not, I think they're stuck. I think, I think they're in for some misery. <laughs> yeah, they're, in for, they're in some misery. So if that's the case, I think, you know, yeah, I think that, you know, okay. If we condition it on the political, politically, it's impossible to basically reopen the nuclear uh, plants, um, and there's no other option to have an energy crunch. Yeah, I think in five years, you know, probably Nord Stream two goes back goes back ahead. I, I don't think German the German public suffers indefinitely um, for the sake of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I just I just can't see it. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's super yeah. interesting. So, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens in the immediate uh, term. So yeah, uh, yeah, shifting gears. I mean, a little bit. You have um, uh, you have so you've written a little bit about sort of affirmative action and your and the uh, Harvard Asian case. Um, that's that's uh, the Supreme Court is taking. Um, do you have a feeling? Do you have a good feeling? I have my own sort of opinion on this. Do you have a good feeling on like if the Supreme Court is going to actually get rid of affirmative action in this case or not? Or, or do you? Do you not, would you not speculate on that? Um, I, I'm certainly no expert on the Supreme Court, but uh, just to just to advertise my own podcast, um, I think in about a week and a half we're going to release uh, an interview I did with a guy called Rick Sander, who's a professor at UCLA UCLA Law School, and he's the guy who um, coined the term mismatch. So he's both a scholar at a law school, but also a PhD economist, an econometrician who has studied affirmative action in, in, in great detail. 
And he told me that the way that they timed the granting cert, oh, you're, 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 you've got a legal background, so you know more about this than I do, but the way the Supreme Court timed the granting of cert to hear this case, he claims suggests they are probably going to do something. And he also uh, claimed that, you know, these, these cases, obviously, they're in the air. They know what's coming down the pipe. So the clerks yeah. and the justices have been discussing this, say, the conservative bloc, for example, has been discussing this for some time. So they kind of know what they want to do. And so he thinks there's a good chance there could be a significant change in affirmative act, the status of affirmative action as a result of, of this case reaching. Status. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because you're always in the Supreme Court, like, to know what they're doing. You're just, I, you're analyzing the psychology of like two or three individuals. So it's hard to make predictions. Like, you know how the, the you know, Alito and uh, Clarence Thomas are going to vote and you know how the, um, the three liberals are going to vote. And so, you know, it's like, you know, and then the other, uh, the other four, you sort of have to sort of, you know, psychoanalyze them and look at their history and try to figure it out. So that, that it's fraught yeah. to do that because people can have, you know, idiosyncrasies. I'm not any, I'm not any good at predicting what SCOTUS is going to do. In fact, I'm often shocked at how stupid (laughs) they are, honestly, but, but, um, or, or let me put it another way. That's not the right way to put it, but the extent to which law is not at all anything like the axiom, the, you know, the logical reasoning based on axioms that, you know, they might tell you it when you're in a one L, but, but after that you figure out it's not true. Yeah, um, yeah. I have professors who do believe in the X. I mean, I, 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 you know, I had professors who you could tell they like, you know, they thought there was an objective answer to these things like, uh, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Like I remember a prof- I was telling a professor like, this is all just, you know, this is all just, you're playing with words. You're just sort of getting to the political yeah. result you want. Subjective word. Yeah. Games. And so like, yeah. So it's like, you know, he was telling me, oh, cruel and unusual punishment was not, you know, the death penalty might not have been cruel and unusual punishment at the founding uh, because the um, there were no prisons. Right. So you needed like a way to enforce the law. And now there are prisons. So now we can say, you know, that the death penalty is cruel and unusual. Punishment. Like you're just you're just making things up. Like, you know, what is it being cruel and unusual? It, it, you know, these are words. They had meanings like at the beginning. But then if you start saying, well, the meanings can change with circumstances, it just it's opened up to doing whatever you want. And if you look at like the um, uh, the wording of the Civil Rights Act versus what courts have done with it, I mean, it's the most Orwellian thing you can imagine. I mean, like the conservatives in dissent and the Supreme in the affirmative action cases have have made this analogy. They've said, you know, uh, Rehnquist and one of his dissent said, you know, this it's it's Orwellian because it says don't discriminate based on race. Um, the government has used it to basically say. You not only can discriminate based on race, you have to discriminate based on race. You have to have an affirmative action program and keep track of you know which groups, and then have disparate impact analysis and and all this stuff. So yeah, if you want to be, I, I mean, I've written about this in my uh, yeah in my in my Substack, and I'm writing more about it. If you want to be sort of depressed on how sort of fake it all is and just like you know the the sort of the i don't know if it's like cynicism or or just it just you know whether they're self-deluded or it's just dishonesty um it really is depressing and it's depressing for anyone who thinks you know like society should be run on rationalist grounds or there should be like some kind of you know uh some kind of um uh, connection between what politicians and what say they're doing and what laws say and the way the world actually works. It's sort of a very, just a, a sobering and sort of depressing experience to look into this stuff. Well, I, I concur a hundred percent with what you just said. Um, <clears throat> specifically for uh, the case, you know, Asian uh, admissions to Harvard. If you read the, you know, the ruling by, I believe her name is Burroughs, Judge Burroughs, uh, the federal judge in Boston on the case. She literally, you know, she's clearly statistically enumerate. So she, she, um, 
for example, she weighs in on the issue of racial balancing because the plaintiffs had uh, charged that uh, had asserted that Harvard was clearly using racial balancing. So if you look in a given year, if they because their yields fluctuate, right? So so if they get an exceptionally large African American class, then the, the subsequent years they can take smaller African American classes, and if they get uh, too much yield among Asians, they really they really push down on the Asians in the subsequent. So they, they manage to maintain this time average thing, which is just exquisitely constant over time. And 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 you can see it by looking at correlations between different years, right? Uh, for for different variables like number of blacks or number of Asians or whatever. And the judge says, "Oh, there's no evidence for this." And then she 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 basically just says, "Oh, you see, the numbers uh, for any of these years is fluctuating, so there can't be racial balancing." So so like if if an undergrad freshman physics major made that argument to me in my you know freshman class, I would flunk them. I would say you obviously don't understand math. Like, I don't understand how you can reason. How does A imply B the way that the judge did in the case? And then interestingly, later, if you go further into her opinion, toward the end, she she literally justifies racial balancing as being okay, as, as being like, well, in the interest of diversity, we, of course, we can conduct racial balancing. Well, why did you have to argue, make a fallacious argument, empirical argument against the existence of racial balancing when you later say it's actually okay. It's just the, you know what? I wanted to like, just take the whole thing and put it in a shredder. Yeah. You know, like, like this is the opinion of a, of a learned intellectual. No, yeah. Well, really. I mean, it's all, yeah. I mean, this is, this is not new. So if you go back to the Gratz and the Gretter cases, the two big affirmative action cases, just the dissents, I mean, the, the dissents of uh, Scalia, maybe one or one or two others. I mean, they go into this, they say that, you know, like the Supreme court says there should be no quota. And then like, you know, they go and they say year after year, um, they're basically the, the, uh, numbers are matching. Uh, so if they get like 12% black uh, uh, applicants, they're ending up 12% black. And then if they get 2% Native American, they're ending up with something approximately 2% Native American, right? And then, th- you know, and what they say is they justify, oh, diversity and, you know, we're not like balancing. We're just trying to, um, we're trying to create a critical mass so we can have a different, oh no, but the critical mass, they equal the balance of the applicants that you're getting in. And so, yeah, this has been sort of like a transparent sort of, uh, scam um, from the beginning. And I, yeah, I think this is, so I, I actually, I, you know, if I have to make a prediction, I do think the Supreme court will actually do something good here. Um, the, um, the voting rights act. I don't know if you, you probably don't know much about the vote, but not many people do know about the voting rights act. They probably think it's the no. most innocent thing in the world. It just says you can't deny black people the right to vote uh, based on their race. Yes, it says that, but it's like the civil rights act. It goes much, much further. It has uh, gerrymandering to make sure you elect like radical black politicians. And if you don't do that, like it's against, the law and it has things like where you can't like make minor changes in laws because then it will dilute black political power and so like black political power has to be maximized like it's like it's created like a completely tribal um uh sort of system of voting and the supreme court um uh has pushed back on a lot of that um in the last uh i forget when the i think it was about 2013 2014 the big voting rights case um so that indicates some kind of willingness to sort of rethink some of these uh, crazy laws and policies um, that really trace back to the 1960s and how laws from the 1960s have been interpreted. And now, and this is a more conservative Supreme Court now. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to get. I think we're going to get. Um, I think we're going to get a ruling that's going to make conservatives happy here. Um, and it's going to be interesting. But I, if I could just yeah. jump in, the Ivy League, you know, presidents of the Ivy League schools and such, they're they're very clever in their own way. And so they they've in anticipation of this and taking advantage of yeah. COVID, they've pretty much jettisoned standardized tests. So it, it's gonna be harder and harder to catch them doing stuff. I mean, it took a heroic effort by the students for fair admissions 
to get this case going, to get discovery, to discover the report written by the internal Office of Institutional Research at Harvard that found discrimination. You know, all that is meant to be swept under the rug and undiscoverable. And the more they limit the amount of data that's used, hard numerical data that's used in admissions, i.e. by getting rid of standardized testing, the more they how, how, but how, what about from. the What about the UC system? Because when the University of California got rid of affirmative action, the numbers did change substantially. So isn't that evidence that there's some limit on how much they can sort of tinker with, uh, tinker with the stuff? They were unprepared oh, for that. I see. So, so what what happened is, and uh, I, yeah, actually, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I I lived through all this, and I, I know a lot of the people involved in this. So, um, they were caught by surprise. There were dramatic changes. If you were a social scientist, the data generated by was it Prop two hundred nine in California um, is a goldmine because it's a natural experiment. It, it was a shock to the system, and then you just saw what happened afterwards. But then gradually the admissions office started cheating. And, and there are very prominent professors in the UC system that have uh, who have served on admissions committees or oversight committees who have charged that the University of California is they, cheating. They, they cheat, but have, and, they, ever, have um, they ever gotten back to the what it was before? They have not. So they have a, not. So so it is it is true they've not been able to fully overcome the impact of Prop 209. Um, but you know, now they're trying more and more desperate measures like basically getting rid of standardized testing yeah. entirely. Right? Are you, I mean, are you up, do you think that if they do that, do you think the value of the college degree will, will change and, you know, maybe there'll be less of an advantage to going to elite school or do you think, you know, it's like sort of like how much do you think it's, um, you know, cause a rational, like a rational economic system, right. Would say, okay, Harvard, you're selecting for standardized tests. Yale, you're selecting for standardized tests. So we're going to judge you, you know, if you're a Harvard graduate or Yale graduate better than a staging graduate. Now, if Harvard gets rid of standardized tests because they want affirmative action and they just select people based on, you know, the right race and whether they're left-wing activists or not, um, an intelligent market, like a self-interested market would adjust to that and say, we're going to discount Harvard. We'll hire people from university of, uh, you know, Iowa or something instead. Um, but a, a sort of conformist model of the world of how businesses think would say, no, they'll just keep you know relying on the same things over and over. I'm undecided on like what world we would we would see in that case. Um, I, I think you'll see you won't see uniformity. So you'll see some firms still uh, you know behaving the same way because of conformity and lack of ability to reason from first principles. But some smart firms like Goldman, maybe not Goldman is the best example, but certainly individual hedge funds, for example. They've already kind of figured this out, that there are many diamonds in the rough who were locked out because they are the wrong uh, ancestry group from, say, Harvard. And so if they look at the top kid at Michigan or the top kid at Ohio State or whatever, um, there are a lot of really strong kids now who are, are going to their state flagship instead of the uh, top elite, you know, the elites. So, so there's gradual realization, but it depends on how really how much the firm actually cares about looking prestigious and actually hiring the best candidate, right? Those are different yeah. things. Yeah, there's certainly some interesting, like the not, I, I imagine the nonprofit world wants to look prestigious, right? And they don't have sort of a market, yeah. uh, you know, they're just, they're, they're relying on donors or whatever, government grants, you know, they don't have to be competent. They don't have to make something or meet some kind of price, uh, uh, some discipline of the price system. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I think we will, we will get, uh, you know, it's, it can make it worse. I think you know, the problem with affirmative action, what I actually think is the worst thing. And, you know, the merit thing is is important. But 
I think like the worst thing is that a lot of people who get in with, from affir- with affirmative action and like, especially at hiring, um, they tend to be ideologically committed to a certain worldview because they sort of have to justify um, their place in the, in the system. And so if like we get rid of affirmative action, but instead like we just start direct selecting just directly for politics. Right. Um, Cause that's, you know, that's what like a lot of the data shows, like they're selecting for left-wing activists and these conservative uh, extracurriculars hurt you. In that case, they'll, they'll end up crazier. Like the universities will end up even, even worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and so, I kind of have some bad news for you in the sense that even before we get to the point where meritocracy is totally destroyed, you know, in the university system, we're well on the way in that direction, but, but it's certainly far from accomplished already. There are examples you can point to like companies, tech companies that should care about the quality of their coders. They have internal battles about to what extent they're allowed to use sort of difficult interview questions, uh, how much diversity should count in the hiring process? Is there is there a, a right number, right fraction of uh, hires that have to be in certain groups? And there are huge internal battles at all. It's been widely reported, huge internal battles at all of these companies where it really does matter to those companies, like the quality of their tech staff, technology staff. Um, but clearly they're, they're, they're acting in a way, I think, which hurts their competitiveness as companies because of ideological beliefs within the company. Yeah. Well, you know, there was an interesting story. Actually, Yeah, that's true. I, I don't doubt that that's true. But there's also, you know, the government, you know, it comes in in a very strange way. So there was a, a New York Times article about IBM and they're facing a lawsuit on age discrimination because basically they want to um, they want to, you know, be involved in cutting edge technologies and all these boomers. You know, you know, your brain, you know, they, they have not been trained in the same way. And, you know, your brain does you know go down with age and, you know, they cost more. So they were seemed like they were trying to make a rational business decision. If you want to be a cutting edge technology, I think you would go younger. Um, and the government's coming after them for that. Um, so there is like, you know, they, it's just a terrible system, you know, up and up and down. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I think one thing about the affirmative action case, if the Supreme court gets rid of it, I think there's a lot of, you know, the, 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 the universities, the case focused on universities it could have some broader application and it would potentially lead to more litigation. Um, so like in government grants, um, government contracting, um, in government employment, like affirmative action is everywhere. And so once you start, you know, getting rid of racial preferences in universities, it's the same thing. It's the same simple. Actually, you know, maybe they could actually have a very broad ruling um, saying the Civil Rights Act says X. That would be in their power. Um, and they would say, you know, everything else that justifies affirmative action based on uh, uh, based on um, the Civil Rights Act, that's, you know, that, that that's not allowed. They could do that. That would be very ambitious. I, I don't know if they do that. They probably would do that. They would probably... Uh, uh, they would probably have their ruling on the university's question and then, you know, wait for, wait for other cases to get to the court. And then, apply yeah, I, I kind of feel like their ruling will be limited to education actually. Yeah. I think, I think that's true, but hopefully down the line, I mean, it, hopefully it's just like a wrecking ball to all, to all this stuff because it's, it's, it's up and down the economy and our, in our institutions. Uh, you were in a, so you were, uh, you were vice president of research at Michigan state right now. You, you don't, do you have a, um, do you have an administrative role or you're just, I have no administrative role. I'm just a professor. <laughs> I'm very happy okay. to be professor now. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about sort of like what happened there, but how was the, um, uh, uh, so how, how much did this sort of, you know, you were, so you were, uh, you were vice president of research in the physics department, right? So you were helping fund physics projects, right? No, no, I was vice president for research for the whole university. And, uh, um, oh, so every, everything like everything. all science, all medical school, veterinary medicine school, <laughs> um, 
engineering college, uh, giant nuclear accelerator lab, uh, agricultural labs, you know, one of the top rated, you know, plant plant biology and ag schools, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, I was overseeing all that. I was overseeing about 700 million a year in expenditures. Yeah. So how, how much of this sort of diversity, this sort of uh, putting your thumb on the scale, how much of it did you see in your role? I want to be a little bit careful because I, I, I want to, you know, I don't want to throw Michigan state under the bus, although perhaps I have every right to do so. Um, let's just say that I make general comments that all of this stuff is super baked in to higher education now. And it's only getting worse. If, if you don't like it, it's even getting only getting worse. And so um, one of the aspects to my job, and I did this job for seven or eight years, was that I was the most senior administrator at the university who read every tenure and promotion case for faculty members. And we're a big university. We have 50,000 students, one of the biggest universities in the U.S. So we um, had something like 150 cases a year of faculty either being promoted, you know, say from assistant to associate professor, associate professor to full professor. Um, And I I would look at the files. And the reason it's a little bit unusual for the vice president for research to be doing that, but it was because when I was hired, the president who hired me was very ambitious and wanted to advance Michigan State in terms of academic quality and research output. And so she wanted to, and this is the sort of, if you're, if you, if you like to study behavior in institutions, this is a kind of interesting test case. She wanted to put a hawk in a certain position that would force all the deans and department chairs to really emphasize academic excellence and research excellence at the university. And because they knew that some hard ass guy who was a physicist was going to be reading all the promotion files from the business school, all the promotion files from the ed school, all the promotion files from, you know, the ag school and subjecting the dean to a certain amount of grilling. So we had meetings every year during promotion season. My I would go into the room with, um, you know, the representatives from that college and we would go case by case. Okay, Joe Smith is meant to be promoted to full professor this year. This is his file. Uh, these are his publications. These are letters of recommendation, you know, so letters of evaluation. So we would go through those cases and, um, you know, affirmative action is a real thing. So, you know, there's tremendous pressure to promote people from certain ancestry groups. Um, and, uh, the standards are not uniform. And, um, I've even written memos to the president alerting the president and the provost to certain cases where I said, look, if this happens, we are vulnerable to a lawsuit because person from this group is being treated much more harshly than person from this other group. Uh, and it's very clear in the files, but the recommendation from the Dean is that, you know, the, the, the less strong person in terms of their academic record is being recommended for promotion. And the stronger person is being recommended not to be promoted or not to be granted granted tenure. It's a very big issue. And it was my duty to warn in writing the president and the provost that I could not support this and that it opened us to certain legal action. And of course, those were very unwelcome recommendations. And to see them in writing was very unwelcome uh, on the part of the top administrators. But that was my job. And I, I felt rather, I would rather do my duty 
and do my job than just to succumb to uh, what was convenient. Yeah. Did they get annoyed? I mean, they, it sounds like they got annoyed with you before sort of the controversy blew up. Is oh, well, right? the controversy, all these things have deep political reasons. Okay. Yeah. So, so why, don't one, tell, why don't you tell the audience first about the, the controversy, then you can talk about sort of its connection to the, to, to your oh, work. Well, so what happened in 20 summer of 2020, right after George Floyd was, uh, died tragically, um, there was a student group. It was a leftist student group, the Graduate Employees Union. So very kind of left uh, student group started attacking me on Twitter and calling me a racist and sexist and all kinds of stuff. And um, honestly, somewhat comically, they almost all of their allegations against me were based on blog posts I had written. And in those blog posts, I'm typically... You know, I might write a blog post about some genetics paper that was written by some group, not my paper even. None of the things that were criticized were actually my research. They were all research done by other professors and often at top universities, not Michigan State, other great universities, uh, but not my work. I'm just commenting on their work saying, hey, I read this interesting paper about human evolution. It seems like um, there's some evidence now that height has been under selection for the last over the last 10,000 years in Europe. And that's why Northern Europeans are taller than Southern Europeans. And it's not my work, but it, it's work by very prominent researchers. Um, but I'm just commenting on it. And they, they would off in their tweets, they, they alleged that I was a racist because of those blog posts. And it's almost comical because now in the, in the fullness of time, when people go back and look at these things, they'll realize that the, the, it's a little bit like Judge Burroughs' reasoning in the case that I just mentioned. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Actually. It's, it's kind of like, have you, did I mean, you ever, did these students ever, did you ever meet any of these students and they ever call you or find you or anything like that? No, they never approached me. Um, one of the things they objected to was my podcast, which I did with a colleague of mine who's African American. So a guy called Corey Washington, who has a PhD both in philosophy from Stanford and in neuroscience from Columbia. And he and I are good friends and we did this podcast together. And one of the shows they objected to that we did is we interviewed a professor at Michigan State who studied police shootings. And he's a psychologist and he studies decision making under pressure, under stress. And he had concluded in his own uh, studies of real police officers in simulation environments and also his own statistical studies of the statistics of police shootings that once you normalize to the crime rates or to the rate of, you know, high stress interactions between police and particular ancestry groups, uh, ethnic groups, that there wasn't actually any evidence for a uh, large inflation in the rate at which, say, African-Americans are shot. Yeah. If you normalize the idea is the police shoot more blacks, but like the problem, the, uh, on average per capita, but yes. the measure is not in the population, it's how often you're interacting with so the that, police, that was, of course. That was a statistical study that he had done in several papers, which was very prominent. Uh, also, Roland Fryer, who's a very famous African-American economist at Harvard, had also done a similar analysis with different data and come to the same conclusion. But of course, that was very against the whole BLM and George Floyd you know, uh, feeling in the country at that moment. Corey and I had interviewed this professor on the podcast and he and Corey were actually friends. I didn't really know him very well. Um, and they attacked me over that. That was one of the things that one of the reasons I was a racist because Cor Corey, who's African-American and myself, 
interviewed this psychologist who is quite distinguished. And we discussed papers that were published in the top journals, like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So that was considered evidence that I was a racist. Now, you were asking whether I met with any of the people who were attacking me. They never wanted to meet with me. But Corey actually being a kind of, you know, in his youth, he was actually a Marxist. And um, he's very pro logic and discussion because he's a philosopher. And he also considers himself originally a man of the left. So he, he went and to meet with some of these people and try to explain to them, like, well, we're not really racist by interviewing this professor. Um, you know, how is that racist? I mean, this guy's an honest scientist. It's not even our work. It's not even Steve's work. Why does that make Steve a racist? But the real thing is that they have to realize is that there is a battle within our institutions of higher education. And on one side are scientists often who want to preserve meritocracy and truth and other people who really have primarily political and ideological motivations and, and things they want to accomplish within the institution, which are not based on science or truth. And that is the subtext of this battle. So you, you basically, you know, if you're an administrator, you get caught in these kinds of uh, conflicts. Do you see it as a battle or do you see it more as just a, a route at this point? Because, I, I, you know, I see pushback on Twitter and in the media, but like within the universities, it, 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 it doesn't look promising. I think it's a route. I mean, I think, I think it's funny because my own case was covered eventually by, you know, Many journalists, Wall Street Journal wrote many pieces on it. You can go look at it. The record's very clear. Uh, there was never any allegation during eight years when I had over 600 people reporting up to me and I ran a budget of $700 million. And I, I reviewed 150 promotion cases a year over seven years. There was never a single allegation of sexism or racism against me for all of those activities. There were, however, allegations that had to do with a podcast and some blog posts. And I was forced to resign over that. It's just that, you know, any reasonable person who looks at this will just say like, this is a black eye on the universe. How did they, um, like, so how did, how was, how did it go down? Like, how was their sort of decision process? How did they approach it? The administration? administration? Well, what happened was that, you know, you get all these students protesting and of course it was the, that moment right after George Floyd. Right. So what was it? Students were protesting. Well, it was just a bunch of tweets. Well, what else did they did they do? Other stuff besides that? A petition. Okay. So and that was the a petition. So they weren't like occupying the you know president's no, office. No, no, no. It was just basically just a petition. And then we actually circulated a counter petition, which got something like two thousand signatures from very prominent people, like um, you know the former dean of Harvard Medical School signed supporting me. Steve Pinker wrote a letter to the president supporting me. So I mean, you know, in terms of the if you're a credentialist, in terms of the credentials of the people yeah, on either side of this want, debate, right. it was not, it was very one-sided. Um, however, the president is, you know, and this was a new president, not the one who originally recruited me to Michigan State. You know, obviously they're subject to political forces. And ultimately the president asked me to resign. And I said, well, look, I, I'm, I'm here. I serve at your pleasure. I mean, the, the vice presidents all work for the president to help carry out, you know, his or her vision for the campus. And so I said, if, if that's how you feel, you can have my reserve, you can have my resignation. So, um, but of course I feel it, it was certainly one of the worst days for truth and academic freedom at a U.S. university in a long time. 
But it, but it doesn't it doesn't sound like that much pressure though. Like you said, there was like a petition, and then there was a counter petition. Your counter petition was like stronger. So like you know, where was the where was the pressure coming from? It's a good question. I, I don't know, but you, you have to remember that I, I shouldn't say too much about this because some of these conversations are somewhat privileged. But when the George Floyd thing happened, if you were an administrator of a university or even a corporation, you could see that something was happening in the country. (laughs) And so this, this huge wave was kind of coming. And so you just didn't want to be, you didn't want to be smushed by this wave. Right. So you just, and a lot of things happened that summer, right. A lot of things. I remember it was, I was a scary, I thought we were heading towards like some, something Maoist. I mean, I remember there was one thing where a a soccer player, he lost his job because his wife tweeted something or said something or posted something, I don't know about black lives matter. And like that, that's what we were, we were doing a lot of censoring of art at that time. I mean, it was just like, you know, weekly at cancellations and the polling like showed like black lives matter became popular. Like, Oh no, this has popular support. Now it's just going to last forever. You know, six months later, Black Lives Matter, the polling went straight back down and it, we weathered it, thankfully. It wasn't like a permanent, I, like, Maoist thing. But, I, but I, that's, I thought we were, I was really scared, actually, in summer 2020. I thought it was yeah. really Yeah, well, you were, you were not the only one scared. And, and many of the people who were scared were top administrators at leading institutions of higher education. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, some people are in the job because they want to advance their career. And some people are in the job because they believe in the institution and what it stands for. Truth, search for knowledge, freedom of expression, freedom of ideas. And there's definitely a conflict there. How do you, so like, I I don't know, you know, much obviously about the physical sciences, but I can speak about the social sciences. And when I, you know, talk to people, sometimes people come for me, uh, come to me for advice or just when I'm talking to people um, and they say, you know, I'm thinking about an academic career. I like, you know, economics or I like politics or whatever. I, you know, I tend to tell them don't go into academia. It's not only it's politically um, not very good. It's not like, you know, physics where you need like expensive equipment or something. Right. It's like often you don't need that much money. You just need you know some kind of support. And then you, you know, you're on your computer, you're running, you know, simulations or you're running data analysis. Um, and there's not a lot like, you know, there's more expensive stuff you could do, but I, I tend to think like that stuff is not even that good. And the best research is just, you know, sort of crunching data. And so, and you know, there's, there's think tanks, there's, you know, independent stuff like CSPI. And so anyone in the, who's interested in the social, sciences i tell them just just forget the university you know be like me like just go out there like speak to the world you know reach a hundred times as many people having something interesting to say and put it out there don't write in these you know journals just talking to a few other people having to you know conform to these methods and uh uh you know investigate a kind of like narrow question which i think is just you know just uh, constricting and sort of like what what you can actually uh find out uh when you're doing research and so i have come to um, like just be very sort of against academic social science. I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's very useful and I think you could do um, better work outside of it or at least as good as work outside of it. Um, so that's, that's my advice when people say that, you know, they want to go into academia or they're thinking about it. If someone comes to you and they say, you know, I want to be a physicist or a chemist or whatever, uh, you know, what, what do you tell them? Well, I, I agree with what you just said about social science. I think uh, it's, it's there, it's not in, the, the academic track in social science, I think, uh, is not as favorable as, say, in physical sciences or, you know, STEM. Um, STEM is not without its own problems. But there are lots of important things, whether it's, you know, material science or physics or chemistry, where really you do need to get a certain deep uh, training in the academy, right? Because 
if you say one way I often say this is, is I often say, um, you know, if, if you want to um, start a company or you want to um, uh, trade stocks, the person who might best advise you is probably unlikely to be a professor at a university who teaches that subject, right? They're, they're not really that useful in the real world often. But if you want to build a robot or you want to improve the efficiency of a lithium ion battery, or you want to measure the brightness of a distant galaxy, actually, there's a very good chance if you just go to the nearest university and knock on the door of a professor whose specialty is in that area, that person will be very useful to you. So there's just a difference in how real, to be just to be 100% frank about how real certain subjects are. Um, now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be academic historians or academic economists, uh, but I just think it's it's um, the gap between their capabilities and what's done in the real world outside the academy is not so large, as you were indicating, uh, whereas in, in some areas of academic science, it is, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, you can't go build your own, uh, you know, super collider, um, you know or something, right? And like outside of academia, you need to be within systems to do that, right? Social science is different. So it really depends on, it depends on your field. Yeah. So yeah, I guess the hard sciences, they can't give up on academia. I mean, there's the, you know, that's certain kind of physics, certain kind of math. That's, that's really the only option. Yeah. I think the thing that I feel really, the people who I really feel sorry for at the universities are these STEM scientists who are searching for truth and, they, they really, that's the only place where they can go and pursue questions where, you know, the payoff is, the economic payoff or technological payoff is 100 years down the line. Who else is going to support it? In the U.S., it's universities. And for them to be trapped in an institution now, which is, you know, mainly pursuing some other ideological goals, which aren't necessarily aligned with the pursuit of truth. I think that's a real tragedy. Yeah. How bad are, um, do you know anything about like European universities? I assume China has none of this political correctness stuff, but say like at European universities, you know, I know le- Europe is obviously le- left wing by certain measures politically, but it seems like their universities are not as far gone. Do you know anything about that? My colleagues in Europe, in the, both the UK and, the, and in Europe, uh, tell me they have similar problems. It varies from country to countries how far along things are. I mean, Things were different in the U.S. just 10 years ago. So, um, you know, they've, they've accelerated quite a bit in the last 10 years. I think I, when we spoke, when we first spoke, we were discussing exactly what the causes were for that. But it seems like things have accelerated a lot. And there might be some countries in Europe where things are still functioning kind of OK and they haven't they haven't hit that acceleration that we just had. But uh, I think it's hard to resist over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's other like systems you could imagine, like, you know, the people who've talked about um, taking uh, the university, uh, you know, just separating the research from the the teaching. I mean, the teaching, I think, you know, it's um, it gives you all this administrator, all these administrators, and it gives you pressure from students and takes up your time. If you're, you know, the, you know, the best, one of the best physicists in the world, maybe teaching undergrads is not the best use of your time. So there's a lot of reasons to, you can just have government-funded research. I mean, there there is there, the NIH. I think is like this, right? Um, so there there are stuff like there is stuff like this, um, and you know, potentially less subject to the capture by the you know the crazy people who are who are drawn to the universities. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, well, an- uh, another aspect to this, uh, which 
you know, again, it's very politically incorrect to say this, but, um, you know, if you are, if you're working on trying to build a quantum computer, you're competing against some of the smartest, hardest working researchers around the world, you know, in Beijing or in, you know, uh, Munich, uh, Cambridge, you know, all over the world. So you don't have a lot of time to fool around with other stuff. In fact, you have to be famously monomaniacal to succeed as a STEM researcher, right? You have to focus on your little problem and really just crank on it with your team. Now, it seems like some people who are in other subjects, they actually view a part of their job as being activism, as being advancing certain ideological causes, whether in the broader society or at the university, you know, through speaking and writing and organizing. So there's no way that Joe Chemist, who works on membranes, is going to compete with Joe Activist, who's in the Department of Labor Studies. Uh, It just doesn't work that way because the other guy can spend a heck of a lot more time and energy beating you up in campus politics or or actually attacking you and trying to get you fired, Um, you know, and actually could view that as part of his job. His or her job. Say, look, I'm here for social justice. My the whole reason I'm in the academy is for social justice, and I'm going to fight for social justice. And this membrane chemist, he may be great at doing cell membrane studies, but uh, he has some wrong views about gender, so I'm going to try to get rid of him. So yeah, basically, the serious people have to shut up if they want to get their work done and advance the subject that you know has been their passion since they were a student. And they've devoted their whole lives to, they basically have to shut up because they, 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 they're competing against other equally formidable people at other universities to get the research money, to win the Nobel Prize, et cetera, to get the paper published. And they're not activists. They don't see activism as part of their job. If a physicist goes to a protest on the weekend because they want to support the local labor union or whatever, they view that as, okay, I'm, that's time away from my work, away from my job. It's not what I'm here for, but I believe in it, so I'm going to go protest. Fine, no problem. But the problem is we have whole classes of people on the campus who actually view social justice as their main reason for being on campus. And so it's just a different situation. Well, a lot of these, I mean, that's, you know, that's unavoidable because a lot of these fields were created through political activism, yes, right? So exactly. like, you know, the African-American studies, the Chicano studies departments, I mean, there, there were protests and, you know, that, le- that led to these things. Um, so of course, if your field is, you know, created for political reasons, it's going to be a, uh, yeah. And I, I, in a way, I don't even want to, I don't want to judge those people because they can sincerely believe I might not agree with them, but they might sincerely believe that the number one problem that they can help with in society is this kind of injustice and they should be teaching it to the undergrads and they should be agitating every day. And, you know, however, one has to at least admit that those are two very different mindsets and types of activities that are happening on campus. Okay. One guy's an astronomer trying to figure out like, uh, how how do supernovas happen? And the other guy is trying to like, uh, get all the sexist astronomers fired. Right. So those are two different, very different activities that, professors engage in on campus. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's this, I mean, a selection thing. So I think that like when I was in, uh, 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 there, when I was in grad school, there seemed to be like a U shape of like, you know, how people did in that, uh, did in, uh, our program. So like the people, some people were just like, you know, too lazy to do the work. And so those people wouldn't do well, or they'd take forever to finish or they wouldn't finish. Some people 
could do interesting and um, you know interesting and uh, compelling work and remunerative work outside of academia. So they they uh, moved on to their dissertation stage and then they sort of disappeared. You know, in all humility, I put I put myself in that category. I sort of lost interest at some point. But then the people sort of in the middle who couldn't really you know do anything um, outside of the academy, but were you know smart enough to do the work and go through the motions. I mean, those people stayed stayed in it. And so you know, I think it's just it's it's selecting for like you know a certain kind of and it's not just like ability. It's like you know, what kind of life do you want? You know, how, like, um, you know, do, do you like this sort of playing games of like manipulating symbols and then having other people judge your work and not having, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, accountability mechanism through going out there and trying to, you know, make your way out and build a product or build a business or, or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're at this point, you know, where, you know, at least as the social sciences, I mean, the selection mechanisms are so, so bad. Um, that, you know, I, I, I like, you know, I have like friend like Eric Kaufman who, um, works on like trying to reform the university. You know, a lot of people try to do this. The university is also trying. I just think it's, it's hopeless. You still need the university for STEM. Um, you know, there's like some, you know, I, I just think about reforming from the outside. I know there's some places I, you know, I, I think like Tennessee did this and I think Australia did this where they, they fund you if you're going into a STEM project, like the government will give you money to study STEM, uh, but not the humanities or social sciences, or they'll give you less money or something or something like that. Um, I think we need to think, start thinking about solutions like that because I just look at the social sciences and I think, look, you're, you're not going to reform this. It's just the selection mechanisms, the people who are there, the methods, the institutions that have developed, it's gone. And all you can do is sort of think about how to limit the damage and limit, you know, their, uh, their power and their resources and their influence. You know, when, when you and I were first talking, uh, on my podcast earlier, um, I, I said to you, you know, I admired you because you and Zach Goldberg and these other guys had really kind of, in some sense, figured out how wokeism happened. They had a very, I think, compelling narrative for how it happened. And, and I was saying that I had totally missed it, even though I was in the academy this whole time. How, how could this wokeism thing have taken over while I was sitting there not noticing? And here's the thing, like being a kind of like a little bit too autistic physics guy, when the Sokol hoax, are you familiar with the S-O-K-A-L hoax, Alan Sokol? Oh, yes, yes. Maybe that, before that your time, not... but Alan Sokol was- No, I, I've read about it, yeah. He's a mathematical physicist and he noticed that a lot of these uh, postmodernist philosophers and literary theorists had kind of completely abandoned the notion of truth and, and the scientific method and positivism, all, all these things that physicists assume naturally these guys had basically just decided were totally untrue. So he decided to spoof them by writing a completely nonsensical article and getting it published in one of the top literary journals, just to, just to prove that these guys are full of it. They're just, it's just complete junk and we should just ignore them. Uh, We should not pay them high salaries and, and we should just ignore them. So Sokol pulled off his hoax and totally humiliated. um, I forgot the name of the journal. It might've been called social text, but it was a very big journal at the time. And I just thought being this, you know, crazy physics, uh, physicist, scientist type guy that, well, Sokol has demonstrated these guys are full of it. So surely administrators and other people <laughs> realize that this is all junk and they should just not pay attention to these guys. But it didn't happen. What happened is actually those guys kind of took over the university and, and all the STEM guys are just quietly taking it. And yeah, it's true. There was even a more recent uh, hoax. I these, these, uh, there was a sequel to the Sokol yeah. hoax, which was even more extreme and you know they published many papers 
Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's more journals and the standards have been even lowered. Yeah. So I'm sure it's probably easier to, yeah. to do that today. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know why you would. It's like, it's like a religion, right? Like you think, oh, some scientific finding has like discredited this branch of this faith, right? But, uh, you know, that never works like that. Right? Yeah. People just, I mean, you know. foolish me to think that, you know, these other people would pay any attention to what Sokol proved, <laughs> you know, um, uncovered. Uh, they just completely ignored it. But do you feel like, so like, yeah, I mean, the way I think well, your portrayal of sort of universities is, you know, probably accurate. And you have like these people who are uh, STEM people, science people, they're just, you know, interested in finding truth. Um, and they haven't bought into all this, you know, other nonsense that goes on. But, you know, they don't, it's not like there's the, you know, my impression is that the STEM people are, it's not like there's some big backlash and they're like, oh no, you know, the crazies are running it. You know, I think your, your view is probably the minority, right? Um, and, you know, we have, we have, we have data on this, again, Kaufman, uh, you know, did, did a study of uh, uh, prof- professors, including, you know, broken up into STEM and non-STEM, so people can look that up on the CSPI website. Yeah, they- um, so this is, you know, this is your view of it, and I think it's probably an accurate view, but the people in STEM and science in the academy don't see it that way. Yes, right? the younger, the, the, the younger the STEM faculty member, the less likely they are to agree with me. And a lot of the younger STEM faculty are themselves super woke and just think this is the right thing. And we need to change the way we teach the math course. or we need to change the way we teach freshman physics, you know, for these reasons. And I think the older that you are among the STEM faculty, the more you're likely to quietly, without trying to get yourself into trouble, agree with, with what I've been saying. So it's an unfortunate situation. Um, Again, I, I want to say, I'm not saying there can't be a place at the university for people who are committed to social justice or ideological causes, but we need to articulate that they're not searching for truth in the way, in an empirical, positivistic sense, you know, the way that scientists are, they're doing something else. They're convinced they know the truth and they're trying to shape society, starting with their own institution in the mold that they want. Uh, but it's a different activity than the search for truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, speaking of um, these, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of branches of science and, you know, what's what's going well and what's not. I was thinking about your uh, some of your writings on economics and you um, you've cited some uh, papers and articles that have been skeptical of sort of conventional views on economics. And, you know, I think you focus a lot on the uh, 2000 uh, 2008 crash. Um, and how they didn't know a lot. My view of economics compared to other social sciences is, uh, look, if you took the average third world country and you replaced like their, you know, their, uh, their dictator with an economist, things would get better probably. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that's right with sociologists or political scientists or anthropologists or women's studies, you know, degrees. I think the Afghanistan war was a large extent. These people were basically, uh, these people were in charge to a large extent. Um, do you think you're maybe a little bit you're, you're you're a little bit too hard on economics because you know the, for the complexity of what it's studying and as far as you know what it's gotten right and you know the decline of poverty you know in the third world as soon as countries started listening to uh, economists aren't they doing something better than most of the social sciences? Well, they are. I think they are. They try to be empirically driven. There are really, uh, I think, deep truths uncovered within economics, I would say primarily within microeconomics. So if you ask, ask about how do market forces, uh, you know, shape prices or how, how do prices, how do prices work as a signal for organizing your economy? I think those things are clearly correct. Um, 
when you get more toward macroeconomics, you know, it's yeah. almost like a kind of like storytelling because the number of degrees of freedom that could affect your economy that you have to deal with is so large that it's hard to imagine that it's sufficiently under empirical control that you can really get to uh, strong conclusions about your theory or your model based on empirical data. There's just not enough examples. Um, really, I think serious kind of people who tend toward rigor or being self-critical within economics admit all those things um, that that I that I wrote about. Um, so I don't think I don't think my take on economics is totally outside the mainstream of like very critical, deep thinking economists. But the average econ prof would just reflexively defend themselves and just say like, "Oh, no, we're real science. Leave me alone. Stop bugging me." I have so. I have this suspicion about macroeconomics. Uh, I have a suspicion that Keynesianism was basically. It won in the marketplace of ideas because it's sort of the most convenient things in the world for governments, right? It like gives you an excuse to just spend a lot of money. You don't really have to think about like too hard about how you spend it. And like when you know when the justification for central planning, when we see that doesn't work, Keynesianism just goes to governments and say, spend a lot of money in certain circumstances. And it's like you could see why governments would like this, but how solid is is that science? Uh, I I don't know this. I'm not. I'm far outside my range of expertise. But do, do you have any thoughts well, on that? Well, you know, I, on a very fundamental level, um, there's an economist I think named Colander who um, surveys um, economists, including PhD students at top departments, and he asks some questions like, um, "Do economists test theories?" And it's a very deep question because because it's asking this question that I alluded to earlier, which is that if your models are so complicated, like I think if you're a development economist, you could list easily a dozen variables which could affect whether a particular country is going to have strong economic growth, right? Like uh, what's their level of education? What's their commitment toward education? What's their, you know, how much corruption is there? You know, you could list 15 variables. Like, is there a neighbor that's uh, threatening to overtake, you know, invade them, you know? You could list 15 variables and then you can ask, well, if I'm trying to test the effect of these 15 variables and I only have like, I have like a hundred examples, but I'm in a 15 dimensional space, how well can I do? And, and I, like even the most, uh, you know, the most, uh, the, a beginning economics student who's a little bit more mathematically inclined would just point out that, yeah, you're right. You can't, you can't do hypothesis testing if, if, if what Steve just said is true. Right. So this guy, Colander, he surveys, um, you know, both, I think both economists and, and grad students in economics departments, and, you know, some of them understand this point, some of them don't. Um, one of the main things that I found most tragic in his surveys, he, he asked, like, are there fundamental disagreements within economics? And it's, it's kind of close to, uncomfortably close to 50-50, where 50% of them say, no, we don't have fundamental disagreements with each other, like about whether Keynesianism is an accurate description of, you know, macroeconomics or not. And 50% of them say we do have fundamental disagreements, but it, just the fact that the field can be polarized like that, like, isn't the fact that these 50% disagree with each other imply that for sure they have fundamental disagreements with, because they have a fundamental disagreement about whether economists disagree about fundamentals. So the whole thing, it shows you the whole thinking within the field is not coherent. It's not even equilibrated properly. So you, you can go to a department and find a really strong Keynesian true believer, and you can go to another department or maybe even the same department and find a guy who's a George Mason kind of, um, you know, completely anti-Keynesian, Hayekian guy, and uh, they live with each other, right? 
uh, we don't really have that in physics where one guy says special relativity is wrong and the other guy says special <laughs> relativity is right. Well, you have, I mean, you have the, like the interpretations of quantum mechanics, right? I mean, the, there's some people who think the multi-worlds uh, is correct and some people who don't, right? And that, that seems pretty fundamental. That is the most, but we agree that we disagree. And uh, we, we actually, most would say that uh, in the places where there are these disagreements, it's because there's not enough data to uh, resolve the issue. So we, we were lacking some experimental capability to test the issue. Um, it's generally not a disagreement about how experiments are interpreted and things like this. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm not, I, I think like if you live through something like 2008 and in while 2008 is happening, while the financial crisis is happening, you, you go down the hall and start talking to your economist colleague. And then you realize the economist colleague doesn't actually know what a credit default swap is, but at the same time is giving you some long spiel about what's happening in the economy. So I'm in a weird position because half, more than half of the theoretical physicists that I trained with, was educated with, ended up on Wall Street in hedge funds and creating these instruments. And I considered that as a career option for some time. So I, I had carefully studied lots of things like options pricing theory and um, derivatives and all those, all the math that's required for to be a quant on Wall Street, I understood pretty well. So I was really shocked when I, the academic economists that I was speaking to, and these are very prominent people actually, because I was actually invited because I was blogging about it. I was invited to a bunch of conferences about the credit crisis, where most of the people at the conference, or at least half of them, were economists, right? And so when you when you meet them and they're they're, they're you know they're on the one hand they're giving these amazing quotes to the Wall Street Journal the New York Times about the crisis and then you start questioning them in detail about well do you know how these mortgage backed securities are constructed no uh, do you know what firms are buying what firms are selling what the incentive structure looks like for the guy who's building the portfolio no well where does your opinion come from well from nowhere actually honestly so it's it's kind of absurd. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That is, I mean, I've seen that in academia too. I've seen IR theory try to explain like, you know, historical situations. And then you go with like, you know, a little bit about the history and you're like, no, that's actually, that's wrong. Like you, you get basic yeah. things about the facts of what, what yeah. actually happened. Uh, so yeah, I mean, let's, uh, yeah. So let's, uh, let's close out. I just want to ask sort of a, I guess another personal, uh, question, you, you know, you, you've been out there and you've been, you know, publicly, um, uh, uh, speaking about many issues and, you know, you're not afraid of controversy. You know, I, I admired the way you dealt with um, when they came, the, uh, those, you know, grad students came after you. You know, I'm, I'm always disappointed when people sort of, you know, fold or apologize and say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And you didn't do that. You know, I really admire you for that. Um, you know, what do you what do you attribute this sort of um you know, this, I, when people say I have courage or like, maybe I always cringe because like, I'm a, a lot like I'm running through like minefields or, or anything. Right. It's just like, I'm, I'm saying my opinion on Twitter. Um, but like, obviously there's something different about me. Obviously there's something different about you compared to the normal person to a, a normal, you know, average person. Um, what do you attribute that to? Part of it is just, uh, I would say personality. So some people are just willing to be a maverick to, to differ from the crowd, to, to, to have a different, different opinion than the crowd. Um, you know, my intellectual hero, as you know, Richard Feynman, he, he had no fear of standing out from the crowd and doing something different. So in, in that way, like he's my role model. So uh, it was natural for me to say, well, if I, dif if I disagree with the crowd, you know, as I've gotten older, you get wiser. So, so when you differ from the crowd, you want to think carefully, like maybe the crowd knows more than me and I'm just being stupid. Like I'm being 
in a juvenile way, I'm being a maverick or something like just to be a maverick or something. So you, you want to weigh both of those things. But it's also true that as you get older, if you study the history of science or the history of ideas or intellectual history, you'll often find that, um, no, actually the guy, you know, anything useful that got introduced, whether it was IVF or quantum mechanics or whatever, yeah, the very first 10 guys that our innovator talked to told him he was full of shit and wrong, right? So so that's that's like the standard uh, experience you should feel if you are deviating from the crowd in a right, in a correct way, you should, you should feel that kind of a burden, uh, a pressure to conform, right? So, so you just have to integrate into your life expectation that I'm going to be, I'm going to be forced to uh, undergo this um, unpleasant sensation uh, by the crowd. And that's why most people are, are just conforming all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's an idealism there because, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think if you like say that, like, you know, you give that little spiel and you say, oh, Galileo and this and that. And, you know, people were always, you know, oppressed for saying things that were true. I think like everyone would like not like even your like diversity administrator, like might not might not allowed with not not along with that. Um, but then, like, if you look at people's actual opinions, like they end up being conforming on every every topic. So it's funny, like how people like I think what you're saying, like everyone agrees with that in the abstract. But like, actually, you know, they would say thinking for yourself is good and standing out from the crowd is, is fine. Um, um, but then, you know, and then reality, they, they just end up conforming. So people really do compartmentalize. And I've always I been pressure is in, I think the pressure is enormous. Um, there's actually a quote from one of Feynman's contemporaries, one of the guys he shared the Nobel Prize with, a, a theoretical physicist called Julian Schwinger. He wrote about this later in his career because he, he started working on some different stuff that people didn't like. And he said the he, he, the direct quote is, the pressure to conform is enormous. And this is a Nobel Prize winner who was one of the most brilliant physicists of his generation. You know, he was famously brilliant. Um, and yet he was saying what lo- decades after winning the Nobel Prize that the pressure to conform is enormous, right? And I, I think that's just true, right? There are probably good evolutionary reasons, evolutionary psychology reasons for why we conform. But, um, you know, so if but if you if you want to think for yourself, I mean, I think, you know, the ultimate goal, even if you're not a scientist, is to look at this world, try to understand the reality, try to understand how things really are. But you can't do that if you're not willing to go against the crowd sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's just, I, I you know, I don't know, like. Like, I don't know if we have like a good way of like explaining what makes some people actually willing to do that and some not. I mean, it's just, it's well, just something. People, people vary by, um, there's a, there's is a, autism, is autism, like, you just say it's, what, is it just autism? When I, I was looking at the symptoms for Asperger's once and one was like, one of them was like a naive concern with truth. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a disorder. That sounds like a heroic trait. Yeah. <laughs> is it just like something we could sort of, you know, sort of uh, reduce to something like that? Well, to some extent, I think Asperger people are, uh, Actually, the uh, there's an economist. Um, I can't remember his name now. He's another Nobel Prize winner. The economist who first started doing experiments uh, with people to test market uh, dynamics. Um, his, his name is Smith. I should remember his name because he went to Caltech. But he he himself is autistic, and and um, he wrote that one of the reasons why he was able to not conform with the orthodoxy in economics was because he he was. Aspergery and just didn't didn't care or didn't didn't understand what other people wanted him to think, um, but but there is a big five personality trait called a, a, agreeableness, 
Well, people who are high on agreeableness, they don't like a lot of uh, conflict or disagreement in their lives. And have you taken a big five? Or where are you on agreeableness? I'm actually high on agreeableness in so far as you fill out the survey, but it depends on the survey, the specific questions they ask you. So, so I'm I'm high on agreeableness in that I don't I try to have harmonious relations with my family or with my colleagues or people I meet on the street or you know, I, and I like making friends. I I don't try to generate unnecessary friction or discomfort. But when it comes to something like a matter of science or a matter of, you know, um, something that really matters, then I'm willing to have disagreements with other people. So, but I still, I, at least on the, the tests I've taken, I score high on agreeableness. Yeah. Yeah. I score low. I, I remember I was at the bottom 5% or something when, when I took it. So I mean, it's not agreeable. It's like, we both come to the same place, but we're, we're on different sort of ends of that. Yeah. I mean, most, most people who are out there tweeting out their opinion and stuff, or even most geniuses who win Nobel prizes, they score low on agreeableness. Yeah. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's probably true. I said that was the last question, but actually I wanted to, speaking of genius, I wanted to ask you uh, one more thing. You talked about sort of the, the sort of gradations of, of intelligence, right? The difference uh, you, you uh, written about, like the difference between like a one in a hundred, a one in a thousand, a one in 10,000 and what you're capable of. And I think you you wrote something about Bezos. Was it you who like Bezos was t- trying to get a, was he trying to get a PhD in, in math or something at Stanford? And he was like, you know, Bezos is obviously very smart and people around him think he's super smart. But like when he was around these other people, he would like felt like an idiot. And can you talk just a little bit sort of about that and sort of like, you know, I think one, one problem is people have this idea that like, like genius is not that rare of a trait. So like if we cancel people or we replace people from one race with another race, like it doesn't matter. Um, there was a, uh, uh, there was a guy who just got canceled. One of Biden's guy who was like, an, uh, I don't remember what agency he was, but basically he was uh, in charge of like, yes, he was in charge of like uh, curing cancer basically. Um, and I remember I was reading about this cancellation. He made all these women cry. Uh, he yelled at them. And then there was like this one quote, which was like, you know, I don't think genius is so rare that we have to tolerate like a mean boss. And like, that's one, you know, that's one perspective. Like anyone who's in the top, you know, uh, you know, the top 5% or top 1% maybe can do his job. So you don't have to, you can, you can look for a saintly person because there's so many people who can do the same work. Um, but that's, that's not that's not how the world is, right? Yeah, I mean, okay, this is a very complicated question, but I'm very happy to talk about it. Um, so, in terms of you know different levels of intelligence, so psychometricians try to measure this kind of thing, and there are qualitative differences. So, in these the most famous studies of this type, where they follow a group of kids who have been tested when they're quite young. And then they ask like, what happens to them 50 years later. So they track thousands of kids for 50 years and they look to see whether they can, for example, you could ask, are there diminishing returns? Like suppose the kid scores, you compare the kid who scores at the one in 100 level on the test when they're 12 with the kids who score at the one in 10,000 level on the test. And then you say like, oh, is one group more likely to be a tenured professor in STEM or is one group more likely to have a patent or is one group more likely to earn more than a quarter of a million a year. And, and what you find is there are no diminishing returns. So in other words, as you go out to these very stratospheric levels of capability, at least as measured by the test, there are still continuing positive returns. And um, Bezos is a very interesting case because he's a very honest guy. And so Bezos was an undergrad at Princeton. And several close friends of mine were in his eating club and also in his physics classes with him. So he was an undergrad physics major. He went to eating Princeton. club. What's an eating club? 
Oh, eating clubs at Princeton are kind of like their fraternities. Um, they don't have Greek letter fraternities, but they have these eating, they're social clubs. Um, and so I think, was he in Cloister? I think anyway, but he, 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 uh, he was in the same eating club as several of my friends. And, um, he wanted to study physics. He went to Princeton specifically to study physics. They have one of the top physics departments there. And um, he wrote about this very openly, which I admire him because oftentimes people, if you meet someone who's better than you at something, the, the natural protective impulse is to say, ah, I didn't really care about that. And he's only better than me in this narrow way. And fuck it. You know, that that's the usual reaction. Or these IQ tests don't mean anything, or the GRE doesn't measure anything, or the LSAT doesn't measure, you know, you meet somebody who beats you, oh, um, you know, that guy's way faster than me, but I'm a better receiver because I've got more body control or something. Well, people think yeah. there's, sometimes people think there's a threshold, but like they're above it, whatever that threshold is. is yeah, exactly. <laughs> above any, one, one way to say this is any IQ points above mine don't matter. It's superfluous, yeah. Yeah, superfluous. <laughs> it does, there's diminishing returns after. After my IQ, there's diminishing returns. So, Bezos wrote open, wrote very clearly about this. And he said, he said, actually, I was doing great in physics until I got to quantum mechanics. And I know exactly what he's talking about because I teach those classes. And at a certain point, the material gets more, much more abstract and you deal with, uh, you know, infinite dimensional Hilbert spaces and stuff like this. And he'll, and Bezos just said at that point, I could not follow. And he said, there were a, a few kids, and this would be a typical thing. These would be the top physics majors at Princeton in a given year. There were a few kids who got this material naturally, had no trouble with it. And at that point, I realized I'm just not going to be a physicist. And he switched to computer science. He's just very honest. Now, if you talk to other people in the building of the company, Amazon, Bezos has great generalist brain power. So in other words, he can go into a meeting and he's talking to a bunch of engineers about how to optimize the supply chain at this factory or some optimization process for, you know, detecting counterfeit goods or something. And he's just very good at reasoning. And lots of engineers have said, Bezos is like the smartest guy in the room always. And he always has the right instincts and he can deconstruct some complex argument that we give him and come up with a better solution quite often. And I think these are true because I've founded tech companies and I think it's just true. Most of the guys that I know who are at this level in theoretical physics, they can solve engineering problems. It's not difficult for them. Like, so if, if, if you, you pull Richard Feynman out of physics and you say, Hey, can you help the company thinking machines? This is a true historical thing. He helped the company thinking machines design the first parallel processing computers. Well, he didn't have any training in it, but he just had more horsepower. So, so, Bezos has more horsepower than the average engineer at Amazon. I think there's no doubt. But Bezos himself says he really had a lot of trouble trying to understand quantum mechanics at an abstract level. And I believe him and because I know people who were in that same class in that same year with him at Princeton. So anyway, it's a true story, but it reveals something that most people don't like to admit. And they don't even imagine it because typically you can imagine people who are a lot dumber than you. And you can imagine people who are a little bit smarter than you. But when you when you actually say, like, what would it be like to be much, much smarter than me and look at the world? How would you perceive it differently? People cannot imagine that. People just don't have the dynamic range because by definition, they can't simulate somebody who's out here. They can simulate somebody who's on this side, right? 
they can maybe simulate just guess at what it's like to be here, but they cannot simulate yeah. what it's like out yeah. there. Yeah, I guess if you're like you're drunk, you can say, "Well, this is what it would feel like if I was like 20 exactly. IQ points." Or I had a very <laughs> bad day. I was sleep deprived. I just couldn't think clearly. I can understand how that works, right? Or I under, I remember how I perceived problems when I was 12, but now that I'm now I'm 18, right? Yeah. Um, but, but, but sometimes I guess you can have a really good day. Sometimes you know you really feel it's on, and you can say, "Oh, like you know, if I was." 10, like 15 IQ points higher, maybe this is what it would be like all the time. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. But what about 50 IQ points? <laughs> yeah, I probably don't have a day when I'm 50 IQ points higher than I've I can get 50 IQ points lower, right? You drink enough. You yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so what I like about Bezos is he's very honest and he just, he just, he lays it out. And this is a perspective that many people can just cannot accept. So they just won't accept that what Bezos, the, the picture of the world of reality that Bezos paints in this set of anecdotes is true. They just can't accept it. So, yeah. um, I mean, and that's like a policy question. I mean, does it, like, does that mean that we, I mean, do we as a society just owe such a dispor- disproportionate debt to like the few Bezos is the few people and shouldn't yeah. like policy be just centered around like, you know, if it, if it conflicts with equality at any point, right. We should be basically on the side of letting genius basically run free towards socially productive ends, of course, not, not through, not to, you know, creating complex yeah. financial mechanisms that, I, you know, destroy the economy. I think it's, uh, it's deeply out of favor today because of, uh, you know, people are so pro equality, but I think it's disproportionately advances in hard subjects like science and engineering come from people who are disproportionately drawn from the tail, the, the right tail, of the distribution. And, and that, you know, if, if you 30 years ago, if you would, had this discussion with any number of engineers or scientists or whatever, they, they would have just laughed and said, well, how else do you think it works? You know, like, like, of course, you know, I try to get the smartest grad student into my lab possible because I think he's going to be able to push us forward. Of course it works that way. There would be no question that it works that way, but only today in our kind of crazy, you know, uh, woke world, can people question that actually there are non diminishing returns to increasing cognitive ability. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I think, I think, yeah, we're going to leave the, um, we're going to leave the audience on a sort of pessimistic note. I think if you listen to our, the first podcast we did, um, we talked about Chinese science and I think we were more optimistic. And so if you want uh, sort of hope that, you know, science will continue somewhere, I think, you know, if you haven't listened to that one, you should go back. I think, I think science that. will continue. It's just, uh, you know, things are somewhat less efficient in the they West than that. they could be. And it's, it's kind of growing. Um, yeah, the, 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 the trajectories are, are bad, basically. By the way, yeah. let, me, let me just give you one more anecdote, which is kind of interesting. So Los Alamos National Lab was where the first atomic bomb was built, famously, mm-hmm. you know, led by Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And um, the core group that really did a lot of the important stuff for the bomb were a bunch of uh, physicists, theoretical and experimental physicists. And they've always had a tradition there of having a theoretical physics group. I think it's called T8 or T9 theoretical division. And um, even though the lab has increasingly become more and more focused on, you know, military things, uh, weapons, atomic weapons. and stuff, they still keep a theory division, which for many, many decades was quote outside the fence. So outside the fence, it's both literal and also um, um, administrative. So, if you're outside the fence, you may not have super top secret clearance. Like you might be working on, you know, uh, you know, uh, muon physics or, you know, some kind of very uh, abstract physics, but it doesn't have any application to bombs or something. You may be working on quantum field theory or something, right? 
So for a long time, Los Alamos had this outside the fence research group. But interestingly, if you talk to the people who were in that group, some of them have top secret clearance and they do work inside the fence, but some of them don't. Some of them refuse to get top secret clearance because they don't want to be pulled into behind the fence uh, research. And the behind the fence stuff is what in comic books and in the defense industry, you think of as like the hardest skull cracking mental work, like trying to figure out how to improve satellite imaging or how to figure out how to improve, you know, fission or, you know, things that are considered really hard, you know, by the rank and file engineer or whatever. But if you talk to the guys, and these are my colleagues, if you talk to the guys who are in T8, who are, who are in the outside the fence lab, you know, sometimes when we're having a beer, I'll say, oh, it must be interesting at Los Alamos because you, you do some behind the fence work, right? And they'll say, yeah, I do a little bit, or, you know, I do 10% time behind the fence, or they're trying to make me up it to 50% or something. And I'm like, well, okay, so who's in there? Like, are there any good brains in there? Like, are, are there actually good people there? And they're like, a few. And what they mean by that is like, actually, most of the very best people at Los Alamos are in the outside the fence group. And that's why they're constantly trying to like get them to come back there and work on these applied problems. But the, the really sharp guys don't want to do that. They want to work on problems that are more intellectually interesting to them. And so there is this very far right tail that can do stuff if they want to do stuff. But oftentimes yeah. they're doing something which only is important to, you know, the long-term advancement of science and not to some short-term engineering problem. But they do you have a feeling of engineering whether, problems when they need to. Do you have a feeling those you know, very far right tail people uh, maybe are too interested in the theoretical stuff and maybe we'd be better off if they applied themselves to the applied stuff that can can uh, be sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of society, so you might say in terms of the short run uh uh, benefit of society, what you just said is correct. It would be great if you got them working on applied stuff like like Bezos working on, you know, like uh, yeah. optimizing, you know, sorting of packages or something. But on the other hand, they might say to you, no, 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 these discoveries that we're making now will pay off 50 or 100 years from now. And um, they'll make huge, you know, changes in the way we view the universe or whatever. I think it's an unanswered question, actually, what benefits society more, even in the long run. But the point is, it's a matter of personal preference. So a lot of these guys want to do this kind of beautiful abstract thinking. Uh, but the, the point I'm trying to make is most people, would, some people would like to claim they're not able to do these hard engineering applied type problems. But I think it's totally untrue, actually. So yeah. uh, it, it, it's consistent with the Bezos story, actually. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Steve, I mean, this has been uh, fascinating. Um, anything you want to um, plug or uh, talk about before, before I let you go? No, it's great talking to you. I'm sorry we went, went on so long, but hopefully your audience oh, likes this, it. This and, is what uh, we have you here for. You have broad, you know, broad interest, so there's there's a lot to cover. So yeah, great. All right, great. Evan. All right, talk later, Steve. Bye. Okay, take care.